Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 to 23. We started looking at this passage uh, four weeks ago. Uh, then I was gone for the three Sundays in a row. And so uh, I'm going to do a good amount of review because I am not so naive as to sit here and think you remember what I said four weeks ago. So let's let's read the passage first. It says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. The worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now, if you recall, we previously studied verses three through nine in which Jesus told this parable to the crowd. But as we said, only those who are members of his kingdom can understand the parables. Uh, to the rest of his listeners, a parable is just an impossible riddle. And Jesus intended it to be so. Because of the nation's rejection of him, he no longer focused on teaching plainly so that everyone could understand. But rather, he now focused on teaching parables which only those who were, who, who were his true followers could understand. And even then, he would have to explain them to him to them so that they understood completely. And so starting here in verse 18, he begins to explain the meaning of the parable. And I tell you that we have to ask ourselves a question at this point, and that is obvious question, who is the sower? Jesus doesn't identify who he is in this parable, but immediately after explaining this parable to the disciples, he gave them another parable in verses 24 to 30 about the wheat and the tares. And in verse 36, the disciples told him, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. And verse 37, he answered and said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So I think it's rather obvious that the sower in this parable of the soils is also the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the original sower. He's the one who first puts the seed in the soil. And that brings us to the second question, which is what is the seed? Well, verse 19 says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom. The seed is the word of the kingdom. It's God's revelation. In Luke 8, 11, which is a parallel passage giving the same parable, uh, it says the seed is the word of God. So it's the message about the king and his kingdom. It's the good news of entrance into the kingdom by grace through faith. It's the gospel. But understand also that in a broader sense, anyone who preaches or testifies to the gospel is a sower who sows Christ's word on his behalf. If you repeat the message of Jesus Christ, you become a sower. Jesus was the first sower and we who follow by giving his message are also sowers. And we said before, God doesn't call us to create our own message. 
uh, we're not to produce a new supply of information. Uh, it's just as only God creates seeds that reproduce themselves, and only God creates the word of the gospel that brings the life of his son to a believer. The work of Christ's witnesses is not to manufacture a message to create a synthetic seed or to modify the seed that's given to them, but to sow God's revelation by proclaiming it exactly as he has given it. So the parable is about preaching the gospel of the king and his kingdom, telling people that Jesus is the king, that he's coming to bring a kingdom, telling them what the king is like, telling them how to get in his kingdom, telling people what his kingdom is uh, and that he promises to them life, uh, what it promises to them in life and death and eternity. So we're, we're talking about preaching. And then we come to the soils. And this is the main point of the, the parable. It's about the people, how people will respond to the gospel. We've seen that there are four kinds of soil. And in this parable, all the soils are basically the same. It's, it's just dirt. It's that if given the right conditions can support the growth of crops. The issue is the conditions which affect the dirt's ability to grow crops. Some is hard. Some has rock beneath it. Some has weeds and briars in it, and some is soft and deep. Uh, so the issue is not specifically the soil. The issue is what has influenced the soil, the condition that it's in. And we know that the soil refers to the heart because it tells us that in verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Heart is the same as soil. Uh, you see, the issue is the condition of the heart. The basic point of the parable is to encourage the apostles, they're listening there, that there's going to be hard soil. You've got to know that or you can get disillusioned. Uh, and there's going to be rocky soil. And there will be briar-filled soil. But there will also be good, rich, deep soil that will bring forth 30, 60, and 100 fold. It's an encouraging parable. It's a parable to help them to approach the ministry with excitement and anticipation that God is the one who will produce the results. Notice that the mark of salvation in the soils is fruit. And, and only one out of the four demonstrates that. That's a very important point. See, folks, salvation is observed by fruit. Not by foliage, but fruit. And if you don't understand that, you're going to get confused by the parable. So we're going to meet four kinds of hearers, four kinds of responders to the gospel. They're just as characteristic in our day as they were when Jesus gave this parable. So there are truths that we're going to be able to identify with. Jesus tells us about four basic types of hearers that they can expect to encounter. The unresponsive the superficial, the worldly, and the receptive. Now, we looked at the unresponsive here last time. Let's go over him again. Look at verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. In verse 4, we were told that some of the seed fell on the hard-packed dirt along the side of the road. And the birds hovered around and waited until the man's back was turned, came down and ate and hit the 
the surface and ate the seed. Now, what is it? This is the person who's hard-hearted, uh, the person who's unresponsive, inattentive, unconcerned, indifferent, negligent, doesn't want anything to do with it. And the birds of verse 4 are representative of Satan, referred to here as the evil one, uh, who comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. In other words, there's a condition of the human heart that has been so pounded and pounded upon by the sin in his life, and his pride is so great, there's no sensitivity at all. This is the heart that knows no repentance. It knows no sorrow for sin, no guilt, knows no concern over things that really matter. We've all met that kind of person, haven't we? Some of us may admit at one time we were that kind of person. I mean, you've thrown your seed and it just bounces. Uh, nothing, no penetration. It doesn't stay there very long until Satan comes in and takes it away. This is the same as what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4, where speaking of Satan, it says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God. Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, when someone does not respond to the gospel initially, when they're hard-hearted and stiff-necked, Satan just snatches it away. He just blinds them to his true value. Now, why does he do that? How does he do that? Well, he does it a lot of different ways. Uh, one way he does is by sending in false teachers who change and twist and distort the gospel message. Another way he snatches seeds by fear of others. They're afraid they might be ostracized by their family or lose their reputation, be thought of as a fool. Sometimes he uses pride. The person is just so arrogant, thinking they know better than this religious fanatic that's sharing these things about Jesus Christ with them. Sometimes he snatches it away through doubt or through prejudice or through stubbornness. They think that if they have a problem in their life, they can fix it on their own. They don't need Jesus to start messing around with their life. Sometimes Satan does it through the love of a particular sin that the person doesn't want to give up. Sometimes it's just through procrastination. You know, I'll, I'll wait till I'm another day. Uh, but one way or another, or in a combination of ways, it just hits that hard dirt, packed in dirt. And Satan snatches away and the person easily forgets that it ever came. There are many people like that, and so we should expect to encounter them. Jesus said there are people with hard hearts out there that are going to reject you and anything you say about Christ so expect it. Well, that's where we stopped last time. Let's pick up verses 20 and 21 with the superficial hearer. It says, And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. The second patch of soil covers unseen rocky places and has no depth. And this represents the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And the indication is that there's not a lot of thought involved. Uh, it's just sort of a quick response, an emotional response, a sort of euphoria. It's instant excitement without counting the cost, without understanding the real significance. There's a warm affection. There's a good feeling. There's a lot of joy, and a little plant just shoots up. All the energy's going up, and it's all external, and it's all on the outside because there's nothing underneath. Because that rock bed of resistance is still there to true repentance, to true brokenness, to true contrition. 
There's just a soft surface, that's all. And there are people just like that. They don't ever really deal with the real issue of their sin and the need to repent. They just sort of jump on the Jesus bandwagon. It, it looks good. And so often we look at them and we see that excitement shoot up in their lives. And it may even seem to come up higher and faster than some of the others who also make a profession of faith. And so we say, oh, wonderful. Look at that. Surely they've trusted Christ. Look at the joy. Look at the tears. It just it has to be real. And three months later, they're gone. It was just all emotional euphoria. Maybe they were lonely and they wanted to belong to a group like the people at the church uh, that, are, that were so loving and caring for each other. Or maybe you were involved in a dating relationship with them and you told them, I can't marry you because I'm a Christian and you're not. And so they claim to receive Christ and they're all joyful and wonderful until about three months after you got married. I saw that happen to a man. It didn't turn out the way you thought it would. Or maybe the person has some sort of deep problem and they reach for Christianity. And there's that sort of an instant feeling, I've got it now, God's on my side now. Or maybe it was some inadequate evangelism like I've seen so many big crusade type events or even summer camp events where there's peer pressure to become a follower of Christ like all those other people who are going forward to profess Jesus, so why shouldn't I do it too? So they jump on the bandwagon, and now there's a happiness and a joy that comes because they belong, they found acceptance, you've been kind to them, they have a sort of sense that everything's okay, it's all really wonderful, but they've never really plowed the soil underneath. They're like the guy who built the house on the sand. They built the house all right. It's standing there. The religious structure's there, but nothing's holding it up. It's superficial joy. And then the heat of trials and persecution comes along, and because they have no root, they fall away. Notice that it isn't the affliction and persecution of ordinary hardships and troubles of life, but what does the text say? Specifically, it's problems that result because of the word. That's important. When the cost of discipleship becomes too high, the person falls away and becomes lost to the visible church just because he was always lost to the spiritual. They were never truly redeemed. Jesus says they have no root. They accepted the seed, but all they produced was a little bit of foliage, no fruit. And they fall away because of the pressure and suffering that comes with identifying with the word. Because of being identified with Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, some pressure comes. There, maybe there's pressure to really begin to live the Christian life. Maybe there's pressure that comes when, from someone says, let's get involved in discipleship together. And all of a sudden, the person begins to feel the pressure coming, so they bail out. And then there's persecution. You claim to be a Christian, and now people start to say things about you. They start to criticize you, make fun of you, call you a religious fanatic. This kind of person won't survive that because there's no root there. There's no depth. That'll blow them away, and they'll give evidence of the non-reality of the initial response. Now, this is so helpful for us because it tells us 
to expect this kind of thing. I know we all have experienced the pain of seeing someone who claimed to know Christ walk away from him and walk away from the church and other believers. Uh, I have seen it and experienced it so many times that when I hear about someone who's made a profession of faith in Christ, one of the very first things that pops into my mind is, we'll see. Let's wait six months or a year and see if they're still with us and if they're still growing in Christ. I know that sounds cynical, but I want to see the fruit, not just the foliage. We need to do all we can to pour the truth into that person, to do our best to help them grow in Christ. But at the same time, we must be looking for genuine fruit. And that fruit will be seen by how they respond to the heat of affliction and persecution because of identifying with Jesus Christ and his people. We are to expect tribulation, persecution, pressure, and suffering for the sake of Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So when the persecution comes and the pressure comes and someone bails out and walks away, we know they were someone with a rocky soil heart. We've had them here at Lakeside. We've baptized some of them. And you can't tell who they are until the persecution comes. And then it says at the end of verse 21, he falls away. The word there is scandalizo. Scandalizo. Uh, we get our English word scandalize from that word. It basically means to cause to stumble, to entrap, to offend. It was used of a hunter trapping an animal by having it fall into a pit. One Greek lexicon that I consulted says that in this context, the word means to disbelieve permanently. So this isn't talking about the person who truly believes, but is struggling with doubt and discouragement, but rather the person who walks away and produces no fruit in their life of anything spiritual that would come from the Holy Spirit. So watch out for the conversion that's all smiles and cheers and lacks the beatitude attitude. Watch out for that superficial kind of thing that happens so often today in the superficial presentations of the gospel that we hear so often. If a person's confession of Christ does not involve a deep conviction of sin, a genuine sense of lostness, a strong desire for the Lord to cleanse and purify them, a hungering and thirsting for righteousness and a love for his word, along with a genuine willingness to suffer for his sake, there is no root to his spiritual life, and it will only be a matter of time until his religious house falls. Now just a footnote here. Trouble and persecution become very important to the kingdom of God because trouble and persecution do two things. One, trouble and persecution will destroy the false believers. And second, they will strengthen the true believers. 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. So trouble and persecution kill off the false professors and they strengthen the true believers. Well, next we come to the worldly hearers. Verse 22. 
And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. And the worry of the world and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The third patch of soils infested with thorns. The word thorns is a word which refers to any type of bush or shrubbery that has numerous sharp thorns. You might think in terms of brambles and briars. Uh, so the, as the sower is throwing out the seed, some of it falls on ground that's overrun with thorn bushes. And that soil represents the person who hears the word, but he or she is too worldly for it to take root and grow in their heart. This person hears the word of the gospel, may even make a token profession of faith, but his first love is for the things of the world. And his worry about or preoccupation with obtaining money and wealth blinds him to the importance of the gospel or anything else spiritual and eternal. This is the person who believes that old adage that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. This is the heart and soul of worldliness. He loves riches and lives as if they're the answer to all his needs and desires. He lives for the things of this world, the cares of this age. This is the perfect description of the average American. They pursue a big career, a big house, a fancy car, the finest clothes, the best looks plastic surgery can buy, and prestige in society. And all of those things are deceitful. They're liars. They pierce many, many hearts. Remember 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10? It says, They who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils, and some by aspiring into it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so Jesus says, There are those who hear but they never clean out the soil out the soil of all the briars of worldliness and its pursuit of money. That's exactly why Jesus says you cannot serve God and wealth. You either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. That's why John said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You can't have it both ways. The soil that is going to produce the fruit must be cleansed of that stuff. Joe, years ago, the U.S. Department of Agriculture came up with a soil treatment solution to assist farmers in planting their crops. The soil treatment contains 6% ethyl alcohol. And when the solution is applied to a field in the proper amount, it causes all the weeds in the field to vigorously sprout and grow. And the weeds just love that solution. And they come up like mad, and that's what they want them to do. And once the, uh, they get all the weeds up, the weeds can then be mechanically removed before they get a chance to develop seeds. And what they found is that instead of having to deal with the weeds every season, it's a long-term solution. The field becomes virtually weed-free for up to five years. I think there's an interesting parallel here. When you as an individual come to the Lord Jesus Christ, there must be a willingness to deal with all of your sin and your attachment to the world to get it out of your life. 
That's what true conversion is all about. The preaching of God's law causes the sin to become evident in a person's life and in salvation. And he removes the weeds of sin in order to cleanse the field of the heart and prepare it for the pure seed of the word. Subsequent sin requires subsequent cleansing. So the true believers continually confessing their sin. God is faithful and righteous to forgive. The Lord desires to keep his people free from sin at all times. But there are those who say, well, you don't have to do anything to be saved. Just believe and that's it. To say that you must recognize your sinfulness and turn from it, you're requiring works. That sounds too much like rocky soil or thorny soil to me. Thorny soil is the person who's trying to hold on to everything in the world at the same time that they want the word of God. But you see, everything else is indigenous to that soil, to that earth. Briars flourish because that's their natural home. So when you introduce the good seed into the soil, it has to be cared for and nurtured and cultivated. It can't survive without that. But the ground's only got so much to give. There's only so much nourishment there. And if it's trying to support all the thorns, the seed's not going to survive. The sower didn't, did nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with the seed. There's nothing wrong with the soil either. It's just the condition that it's in. People don't get saved when their hearts are still occupied with the things of this world. It'll choke it out. You ever wondered about certain people? They, they profess to be a Christian, but they seem to be unconcerned about sin in their life. They don't hate evil and love righteousness. And you say, well, you know, so-and-so goes to church, but he doesn't seem to be committed to walk the Christian walk. He just, seems, he just doesn't seem interested in the things of the Lord. He's far more concerned about pursuing his job, wealth, and prestige in society. But, <clears throat> but if you ask him, he'll swear he's a Christian. <coughs> we once had a man who attended this church with his family for a few years when they lived in this area. And he claimed to be a believer, but all he ever did was work. Uh, he was the proverbial workaholic. Uh, he worked in a white-collar job that paid him well, and if you asked him, he would tell you he was doing it for his family. But he was never with his family either, because all he was ever doing was working to gain more and more money. If you asked him, he would tell you he was a Christian, but there was never any evidence of any love for the Lord, only a love of money. And eventually he quit coming to church at all. He and his family moved to Tampa. And because he was doing so well at his job, became financially well off, he became engaged in an adulterous affair with a woman at his work who saw him as her ticket to wealth and his wife left him. His kids grew up and refused to have any relationship with him whatsoever. This soil is the heart of the person who always says they're a Christian but doesn't care or seem to care about a pure life. Or the person who just gives their whole life for personal gain, personal prestige, personal money, personal enterprises, and that's, that's the goal of their life. It may be that this person's just a soil filled with brambles and briars. Yes, at first it seems like there's a germinating of the seed. Eventually it just gets choked out, and they just sort of fade away. They never really plowed out the garbage. You never got rid of the world and the cares of this age, the deceitfulness, the riches, and the seed is choked. So the Lord says that when you're sowing the seed, you've got to expect to encounter some hearts like that. Let me tell you about another case we had here at the church many years ago. There was a man at the church who was very intelligent. 
He always wanted to discuss things about the Bible. He would uh, discuss various points of doctrine with me and asked a lot of questions, uh, usually about the deep theological debates uh, surrounding such things as Calvinism versus Arminianism, uh, substitutionary atonement, the timing of the rapture, and so forth. And he seemed to be someone who was truly wanted to grow deeper in his faith. So I invited him to join with me in a personal discipleship relationship in which we would meet regularly to not only to discuss biblical theology, but also for personal spiritual growth and accountability. But he kept putting me off. No matter how often I asked him, he, he just kept putting me off. He always had you know, this thing going or this other thing going, and so he always had an excuse why he couldn't do it at that particular time. It was always, I can't do it right now because of how busy I am with work, or I'll be, but I'll be ready in a couple of months. And finally, after asking him about five times over a period of about a year, I gave up. I really couldn't figure out why he kept blowing me off. Eventually, he took a job in another area of our state, and he and his family moved away. Within a year or so after they left, it came about he was carrying on an illicit affair with a woman at his work. And he claimed to repent of that great sin, and after a great deal of consideration and effort on her part, his very godly wife decided to stay with him. And he even left that job and that other woman and took another job in another state. And, but within a couple of years, he did the same thing again with another woman at his new job. And they weren't one-time incidents. They were long, continuous, ongoing affairs. And when the second situation came to light, he told his wife he didn't really intend to stop the affair. And uh, finally admitted the truth that he, didn't, he wasn't really a Christian at all. He didn't really believe all that stuff he claimed to believe. And that's when I realized that the reason he avoided getting into a discipleship relationship with me was that there wasn't any reality to his profession of being a Christian. He didn't want me digging around in his life uh, and possibly discover the truth. His wife divorced him, moved back to Florida. She eventually remarried and lives in another area of the state. He was an example of someone who claimed to know Christ, who even looked to others in the church like fertile soil. But the reality was he was thorny soil in which the seed of the word was choked out by pursuit of the world's temptations, money, sex, freedom from the so-called restraints of Christianity. And when those cases come along, many people scratch their heads and say, well, maybe they lost their salvation. But Jesus says here that they never had it. That's the whole point of the parable. What's the mark of salvation in this parable? Fruit. That's the way it always is. In John 15, if you're a branch on the vine, but you don't bear fruit, what does he do? He cuts you off and burns you. That's condemnation to hell. A branch on the vine that doesn't bear fruit is not salvation. It's only attachment to Jesus. It's fruit bearing that marks genuine salvation. In other words, a true believer manifests fruit. And that brings us to the last soil, which is the receptive hearer. Verse 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now, so far, all of these types of soil 
leave us with a negative feeling. Uh, we've seen that there are going to be people who just totally resist the gospel. And there are going to be people who initially seem to spring up real fast and then burn out when persecution comes. And then there are going to be people who try to waltz along with Christianity in one hand and the world in the other. But now we come to the good soil. Now, this soil isn't good because it has a different composition than the other types of soil. Rather, it's good because it's been prepared. According to John 16, 8 to 11, it's the Holy Spirit who prepares the soil by convicting people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, he plows the soil, he removes the rock, he pulls out the briars, and makes it ready for the seed. And because the heart has been prepared, the person in this soil, the person this soil represents, hears the word and understands it. Luke says these people hold fast. So it isn't just mere head knowledge, but rather an understanding, a comprehension, an acceptance of the gospel, a tightly holding on to it. And as a result, that soil, that man, that person, bears fruit. Some 100 times greater, some 60 times greater, some 30 times greater. That's very productive soil. But notice that even though the amount of fruit varies, there's always fruit that comes from good soil. There's a lot of people who've made a profession for Christ. As I said before, the key is to examine their life later to watch and see what happens in terms of fruit bearing. You can't expect every professing believer to produce fruit like Charles Spurgeon or D.L. Moody. But there must be evidence of some fruit of the Spirit in their life or their claim to be a Christian isn't real. That fruit may be a shriveled up little crab apple, but there will be genuine fruit. In the earliest days of the church, in the centuries following the death of the apostles, the church developed a catechism process, uh, a training program, a discipleship program that was quite extensive. And one of the purposes was to weed out the false professors. Uh, the training consisted of extensive training in the scriptures, memorization of scripture, training them on distinctive Christian values, an examination of their lives to ensure that their lives demonstrated the genuineness of their profession. This process was carried out before the individual was allowed to be baptized. You see, the Christians had learned that many individuals would profess to be a believer and then be baptized and then walk away from the faith. So the early church decided that they wouldn't baptize people until they had sufficiently demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit was evident in their lives and they were truly a believer. In most cases, listen to this, in most cases that catechizing process took three years. And so the new believer went through a three-year process 
of training in doctrine, the life of Christ, scripture memory, and training on godly Christian living. And if they had successfully completed that and gave evidence of being a true believer, then they were allowed to be baptized. Now, I think that's a bit extreme. I will say that. Because, you know, I don't recall Philip waiting three years to baptize the Ethiopian eunuch. So, uh, but my point is that we must be very careful not to assume that everyone who profess, who claims to be a Christian, who professes to be a Christian, actually is one. There's a lot of hard soil, a lot of rocky soil, a lot of thorny soil out there. Only when the seed falls into good soil, grows and produces fruit, is there genuine salvation. The ultimate mark of salvation is fruit bearing. What is that fruit? Well, the Apostle Paul told us over in Galatians 5, didn't he? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, you look at a person's life and you see those characteristics evidenced in their daily lives. And do you see it on a long-term, protracted, continuous basis because the fruit is a continual thing. Colossians 1.6 says that the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying. Constantly bearing fruit and multiplying. So that fruit is to become our attitude in life, the way we live continually. Fruit is God at work manifesting in our attitude, manifesting in our action. Fruit is God producing spiritual reality in our life. Show me someone who does not manifest those attributes, who has no manifestation of righteous deeds as God counts righteousness. And I'll show you someone who, no matter what they may look like on the surface, is going to die out. Fruit is the issue. Even in Psalm 1-3, it says that the true believer is a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. Fruit is always the mark of true faith. In John 15, the true branches brought forth fruit. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. It isn't that you're never going to do something wrong. It's that the person whose heart is truly good soil has a consuming desire to be productive, to let God produce through his life. And even when there's failure, there's great brokenness over the failure because the desire is to see God at work. And notice again that it says that there will be some who bring forth a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The point here is everyone is not equally productive. God uses people in different ways. And there are some Christians who never get, who never really fully get their act together, and so they go through life being a thirty-folder. And when they could be a sixty or a hundred. And when we say that Christians will always be fruitful, we're not saying that all Christians will always be as fruitful as they ought to be or could be. Because when we do become disobedient, then we restrict our fruit bearing. 
But a true believer is someone whose fruit is multiplied and evident. That's the plan. True believers produce fruit. Now, what's the Lord teaching us in this parable? Listen carefully. He's saying, go and preach. Go proclaim the gospel. And realize that as you do so, you're going to get resistance. You're going to get some short-term converts. You're going to get some double-minded people who can't let go of the world system. But in all that, you're going to get some real ones. And keep in mind that you're going to have to deal with an enemy all along the way. In verse 19, he's called the evil one. That is Satan, the devil. He's going to do everything he can to stop you. Second, the flesh is your enemy. Verse 21. People get under tribulation and persecution and they can't take the grief. They want to be comfortable. They want no complications in their life. They're not willing to pay the price to make the sacrifice. The flesh is an enemy. And finally, in verse 22, we see that the world is our enemy. The worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth, it says. And there you have the three constant enemies of the gospel. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And whenever you are sowing the seed, they're going to be trying to stop you. Now, in conclusion, there's several lessons here. First, there's a call to self-examination. What kind of soil are you? God help you to be the good ground. If you're that hard-packed soil that the seed doesn't penetrate and the birds just eat the seed, then you better ask God to plow your soil. Plow your heart. If you're that rocky soil underneath with a soft uh, superficial exterior, you better ask God to plow deeper. And if you're that thorny soil, you better ask the Lord to cling you so you can receive the gospel with purity. So the first lesson in this parable is to look at your own life to see what kind of soil you are. There's a second lesson, and I love this. The issue in this parable is not the skill of the sower. It's not the skill of the sower. You can take a little barefoot kid, seven years old, who wants to go out and sow the field with daddy. And his father knows how to do it beautifully. Father throws that seed almost mechanically and it lands where he intends. But the little kid's going around just throwing seed all over the place. And you know something? It may be that not as much of his seed hits the good soil when the little guy does it as when his dad does it. But when the seed hits the good soil, it doesn't matter who threw it, does it? It's going to grow. So it doesn't depend on the skill of the sower. And that's very important to know. Some people say, well, I'd like to preach the gospel. I'd like to proclaim the gospel. I'd like to witness for the Lord. But I'm not very talented. I'm not very skilled at presenting the gospel. Folks, that's not the issue. You've got the seed, which is the word of God. Just throw it. The issue is the condition of the soil, not the skill or talent of the sower. But let me say that the more you sow, the more you throw, the better the chance, the more opportunities you're going to have to hit some good soil. 
Some people are tossing out a seed or two every year. And they rarely have any results. But if you just keep slinging it, you'll be amazed how much good soil is laying around, no matter how incapable you may be as a sower. And then remember this. Sometimes the Lord plows up that hard-packed soil or the rocky soil, or he clears out the briars and the brambles out of the soil that doesn't receive the seed the first time that you try to throw some there. So don't give up. Don't give up. Be faithful. Hard soil, shallow soil, thorny soil may not always be that way. By God's grace, he may do some tilling in that field. So keep throwing the seed in that same field over and over and over again and see if the Lord might possibly break up the soil. Well, the lesson's very clear, and it's this. Check your own life. Make sure you're following the Lord Jesus sowing the seed. All you have to do is sow it. He'll take care of causing it to grow in the hearts of those who are the good soil that he has prepared. And that brings us to the end of this passage. Any comments or questions before we go? Yes? Would an apostate fit into one of those early three categories, or is that a special classification? An apostate is a good example of the hard-packed soil. Good example of the hard-packed soil. Uh, it's sort of in its own category, though, because at one time they claimed, you know, they might have been more like the thorny soil at some point, or the or the other kinds of soil, because they claimed to be a uh, believer, but then they rejected it. So they are sort of their own category, but at the same time, they give all the evidence of hard-packed soil. Anything else? All right. Well, let's close with prayer and be dismissed. Father, we come before you now and we are convicted in our own hearts of how little fruit we really produce. Lord, give us hearts that desire to produce more and more fruit for you. Not in terms of the souls we lead to Christ, but in terms of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Help us to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And then, Lord, help us to be faithful in sowing the seed, to not give up, to keep throwing the seed, knowing that you are the one who prepares the soil of the heart and that you will use the seed as you decide. Lord, thank you for our time together. Bless us now as we go into the worship service. May our hearts rejoice in praising you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.